Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to worship, and welcome to this time of, of study and looking into God's Word together. You know, I, I think we all love transformation stories. I, I certainly know I do. I, I think that's probably one of the reasons that that old series, Extreme Home Makeover, lasted for as many seasons as it did, because we, we're kind of drawn to those before and after scenarios, right? Wow, look how bad that house looked before. I mean, it was just horrible. But look at it now. You would hardly know it's the same house because it has been so radically renovated. But to me, those stories are even more compelling when you're talking about a person. An extreme makeover in a person's life. And that's why the Christian life is so miraculous. Hey, I just want you to know that around you today are extreme makeover stories. It might be a person sitting right next to you. I know so many of your stories, and I want to tell you, they are miraculous extreme makeover stories. That's what God's into. And so when we come to Christ, he's looking for more than just a decision, more than just a prayer at an altar or at a Bible study or in your bedroom in a quiet moment. God is looking for a radical renovation of your soul and mine. Now, in a sense, everything I want to say to you could sort of be summarized in two verses from today's passage. I'm looking here at Colossians chapter 3. I invite you to look along in your own copy of the scriptures. It says in verse 9, do not lie to each other since you put off your old self. That's what you were before, your old person with all the old nature and everything that went with that, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And so I'm calling today's message, Christ, the one who renovates my soul. That's God's goal in your life. And that's good news. I hope you're encouraged by that. The good work he started in you, whether it was 40 years ago or four days ago, he is committed to carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But now here's the challenging news. We have to cooperate with that. Now, friends, I'm going to make a statement right now that some of you will think is unkind. It's not meant to be unkind. It's meant to be factual. There are millions and millions of people across our nation who would check the Christian box if they were filling out a survey, right? They would say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. But their lives are no more like the life of a Christ follower than this table is. In fact, this table may have more stability than they do. That is not, let me say it again, that is not an unkind statement. That is simply factual. Because behavior is not matching up with belief. Practice is not matching up with position. He said, oh, wait, whoa, wait a minute, Pastor. What goes wrong whenever that happens? When practice, a person's actual lifestyle, is not matching up with what they profess to believe? Well, usually, 
This is an oversimplification, but usually they're not feeding the new nature enough. We all have two natures at work within us. The new one that came when the Holy Spirit entered our life and made us the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we still have the vestiges of that old nature hanging around. It all comes down to which one you feed. I love that old poem that says, two natures meet within, beat within my breast. The one is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, but the one I feed will dominate. Think about that for a moment. The one I feed will dominate. So if we're going to have a renovated soul, if this new nature is going to be prominent in our lives, if our practice is going to match up to our position in Christ, we've got to learn how to posture ourselves, how to feed that new nature and cooperate with God. So that's where we're going today in this passage. Hey, just want to give you a heads up. If you were looking for a nice, easy, light sermon, you came on the wrong day, sister, okay? This is a substantive chunk of Scripture. It is very meaty, and so we're just going to hit it head on. The first thing we need to do if we want that renovated soul is we need a mind that is laser-focused. I'm reading now from verse 1. Since then, you've been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So, if you want to cooperate with God, if you want God to be able to work unencumbered in your life in this renovation process, you start with setting your heart and mind on things above. Now, by mind, the Bible doesn't mean just the brain, and by heart, cardia, the word in Greek, does not mean just this muscle that pumps blood through my body. What does it mean when it says, set your heart and mind on things above? Here's what it means. In the scriptures, the heart is generally that part of you, that immaterial part. I hope you know there's an immaterial part of you that is not just physical, flesh and bone. It's the immaterial heart of you that controls your desires and emotions. That's the heart in the Bible. The mind in the Bible is that thought of you that controls, that part of you that controls your thoughts and your reasoning. So the first thing we do, God wants us to set our desires and our thoughts on things above. And that word set is really important. It is a present imperative. Sometimes a little knowledge of Greek is not a bad thing. And if you look this up in a Greek lexicon, what you'll find is that it's talking about continuous action in the present. In other words, it's not a one and done. You can't just go off to an inspiring conf conference somewhere or, or or go and pray at an altar someday and say, I'm just going to give my mind and heart to God and then not think about it anymore. No. This suggests that this is an everyday thing that you choose over and over and over again. So that's what it means to set your heart and mind on things above. But what does it mean by things above? 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Does God want us to fix our minds on streets of gold, gates of pearl, walls of jasper, tree of life, river of life? Does he want us to think about all those accoutrements of heaven? Well, that's not a bad thing, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Nor does he mean we should think about Aunt Ethel, who was a wonderful woman who loved the Lord and has already died and gone on to heaven. Again, nothing wrong with thinking about those and remembering those who have gone before us. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But that is not at all what God means we are to set our minds on. When he talks about setting your mind on things above, he's talking about the sovereign God who is at work in your life. Think about his character. Think about his purposes in the world. Think about his presence in your life and dwell on those things that are most important. That's what he means by things above. Now, I'm going to hit you with a statement right now that I hope you'll never forget. It is incredibly important. What you desire the most and think about the most is going to control your life. That's so important. Let me say it again. What you desire the most and what you think about the most is going to control your life. In other words, it's going to dominate your life and determine your behavior. Certainly, that's why Paul urged Christians in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? So he wants us to think differently. And again, it's not a microwave thing. It's not a one and done. It's a day by day, even moment by moment, situation by situation, practice. So let, let's just pause there for a moment. Breathe. How you doing? How you doing with that? Would that describe you? Again, there's no judgment here. This is not a judgment zone. Nobody's looking down at anybody else. We're all in this together. If we're followers of Jesus, how are we doing with this? God has, it's in the imperative. It's a command, in other words. That's the verb set. It's a command. How are we doing setting our hearts and minds on things above and focusing on what's most important? Now, you may be asking, but Pastor Rex, how would we even know what's most important? I mean, you told us it's the character of God, it's his presence, it's his purposes. Well, cool, but, but it's got to be more to it than that, right? How do we know what we ought to be thinking about and setting our desires on? Well, we're going to look at this passage next week, but just a few verses later, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. The way to really know what's most important is to be well-grounded in this. And by the way, in case you're wondering why I use the Bible when I'm up here, in case you're wondering why in all of our studies we, we center them around the Bible, even if we're using other books as helps, everything goes back. If you're wondering why we make such a big deal of the Bible, this is really how you know the mind of God. 
So let me say it again. Whatever you think about the most and whatever you desire the most is going to dominate your life and determine your behavior. So if you want a renovated soul, it's, it's kind of simple, really, when you think about it. If you want a renovated soul, you'd better be sure, first of all, that your heart and mind are focused on things that are worthy of your thoughts and desires. So before we leave this, let me just be real quick and say there are some things in this world that are not worthy of your thoughts and desires. Are you, are you with me on that when I make that statement? There's some things that are not, at, this, at the risk of sounding slightly crotchety, let me mention a few of them, okay? Let's get real personal. Let's just, let's just get real personal here for a moment. I will guarantee you that social media is not worthy of your desires and thoughts. I did not say there's nothing good in it. I did not say you can't learn some things from it. I did not say there's no redeeming value in it. I said it's not ultimately worthy of your desires and thoughts. You can take that to the bank. But let me go on. I'll guarantee you that 98% of what is going on at the local cinema, Netflix, Hulu, you just name your place, I'll guarantee you it's not worthy, ultimately, of your desire. I did not say there's nothing good there. Don't misquote me. I did not say there's no redeeming value. No, no, no. It's not worthy of your ultimate focus. Oh, this, I'm going to get even more painful. I, yeah, I can't believe I'm even going there because I'm preaching to myself. That sports team that you love, oh. You know the one where you're just a fanatic. You follow them. You know all the players' names. I want to tell you, they're not worthy of your desire, desires and focus. They're really not. And that heartthrob in your life, you know that beautiful person that you've fallen in love with, that you're dating? They're not worthy of your desires and thoughts. Again, don't misunderstand me. I did not say there is not good in some of these things or value there. What I'm saying is that your highest affections and highest focus in this life, those people or things are not worthy of that. There is one who is. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of your highest thoughts, devotions, and desires. And God's saying to you and me, you got to set your mind on things above. Now, I told you a moment ago that the way to really know how to break that down and to know what those specific important things are is, is to fill your life with this word. You say, now, pastor, how can I do that? How can I let the word of Christ dwell in me richly? If I put this Bible under my pillow at night, would that work? If I just sleep with it under my pillow, would that, would that let the word of Christ dwell in me richly? I wish it would. That would make it easy, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, it doesn't happen through osmosis. I would simply say this to you, Christian. Here's where some good practical habits come in. I started years ago. This is something I do. I'm just telling you something I practice every single day from the hour of 6 o'clock in the morning to the hour of 8 p.m. in the evening. 
at the start of every hour, no matter what I'm doing, I intentionally focus my mind on things above and set my heart on things above. It's just what I do. I need it. And so, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, even if I'm in the middle of a meeting, I just kind of take note mentally, wow, it's the beginning of the hour. Lord, I just want to acknowledge you. And I give thought and attention to think what I typically do unless I'm actively engaged in a meeting or something else, I typically take two to four minutes at the start of every hour, and I intentionally set my mind and heart on some scripture passage. And I just kind of pray it, and I just kind of meditate on it and think about it and say, Lord, thank you for this truth. I'm so grateful that you're at work right now in my life through this, and I intentionally set my heart and my mind on things above. I would urge you to do something similar. Let me just say it again. Nothing is more transformative than setting your heart and mind on things above. But we need to quickly move on. There's another thing. God doesn't want us just to set our heart and mind on things above. Secondly, one of the things he uses as well is a will a will, that's talking about our volition, our volition, our ability to make decisions, this capacity we have to, to do things and will things. He's looking for a will that is radically determined. And let me put it to you this way. If you want a renovated soul, you've got to be willing to do whatever it takes to cooperate with God and his grace in your life. I'm looking now at verse five. Paul puts it in these words, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Remember the poem I set, used earlier? Two natures beat within my breast. One is foul, the one is blessed, the one I love, the one I hate. But the one I feed will dominate. <laughs> well, get this. Paul doesn't say here, hey, starve the old nature. He gets more radical than that. He says, don't starve it, kill it, put it to death. And then he lists some of the things that were to put to death. Again, I apologize for those of you who wanted a kind of nice light Sunday. This is not your day. This is brutal stuff, trust me. What are we to put to death? Sexual immorality impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, I have received a critique several times from people that, you know what, us preachers tend to make a bigger deal out of sexual sins than we do other sins in the Bible. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I don't think that's been true of me just because I've intentionally tried not to, but, but maybe that is true all around. So let me say a quick word about sexual immorality here and then move on to another sin that I can pounce on, okay? So let me just do that right now. Sexual immorality here is the word porneia in Greek. We get words like pornography from that, but don't let that mislead you. This word porneia, translated here sexual immorality, I think it's translated fornication in the King James Version. This is referring to any sort of immoral sexual relation or act. 
By the way, did you know that the one new novel virtue that Christianity brought into the ancient world was sexual chastity and purity? It's the truth. All the commentators agree on that. That's something that was sort of a brand new concept, at least in the Greek world. And so here's the deal. If you're wondering what the Bible teaches about sexual intimacy, it teaches that sex before marriage and extramarital sex is out of God's boundaries and guidelines for a flourishing life. That's what it teaches. I know that is a high bar. I realize that that sounds crazy in our modern world, but that's how much God reveres sexual intimacy within marriage, okay? So that's what he says about it. Just in case you didn't know, just want to throw that out there, all right? But because I get that critique, let me quickly move on. And there's a bunch of sinful behaviors here that we could kind of focus on if we had the time. But let me just pick on one. Let's talk about greed, because according to Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street, greed is good. Remember that line? Greed is good. And you know what? I think so many of us get our theology from movies that we actually buy into a lot of the things that we hear in our culture. And I think some of us think that greed is good, an unbridled passion for more, more, more thinking, thinking that's going to satisfy that deep longing in our heart. And we literally have made a God in our culture out of materialism. Are you a greedy person? Are you? No, I, no judgment here. This is a non-judgment zone right now. We're just, we're just trying to be real in our Christian walk because we're all in this together. Do you believe that just the acquisition of more and more and more material things is somehow going to meet the real desire of your heart and soul? That's not the testimony of people that I've heard. In fact, the unbridled passionate desire for more, more, more only leads, it's like salt water. It's like a starving person drinking salt water. It just leads to more and more passion for more and more. And it is never, ever satisfied. The Bible teaches that greed is idolatry. In other words, materialism can become a God in our lives. And you know, if you were asking me, if we're just really getting brutally honest, I believe that greed is probably one of the most egregious sins in our lives today, particular, particularly in our U.S. culture, okay? But let's move on. He goes on here in verse 8, and he tells us a list of things, and again, this is brutal, that we are to rid ourselves of. Verse 8, he says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So uh, let, let's park here for just a moment. And I want you to put your thinking cap on with me. He says we're to rid ourselves of some things and put some things to death. But back in verse 3, if you'll notice in your Bible, he says, 
for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died, past tense. Does that make you scratch your head a little bit? What, whoa, time out, apostle. You're speaking in riddles here, man. What do you mean we died? And if we died, how can we possibly do what you told us to do in verse five, which is put to death? I just don't get this. Paul is introducing here a concept that theologians call the doctrine of identification. Please hear this, Christian. If you are a Christ follower today, when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried with him because you're united with Christ now. His life is your life. He is in you. When he was raised from the dead, you were raised with him. Remember how Paul started this whole chapter? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. When were we? We were raised when he was raised. You say, wait a minute, pastor. When did I die with Jesus outside of the city walls of Jerusalem? That's why Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. So your position is that you are in Christ. You died in Christ. You've been raised with Christ. By the way, we could go on forever on this because it's a huge doctrine in the Bible. But that's why what Paul means in Romans 6, 3, when he says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Same doctrine, the doctrine of identification. It's a fait accompli. Jesus' history becomes your history. He died, you died with him. He was raised, you were raised with him. That's the doctrine of identification with Christ. And so, when Paul comes now in verse 5 and says, put to death these things, you're doing that from a position of victory already. You're already holy positionally in Christ. I wish I could get that to sink in. You're already victorious. You're already holy. You're already glorified. You're already, as God looks at you, sanctified in him positionally. But your practice hasn't caught up to that yet, nor has mine. Hope you get that. So this whole journey here on the earth is closing the gap, as we taught a few weeks ago, so that our actual lifestyle, our actually pr actual practice matches up to our position in Christ. That's what it's all about. And here's the deal. If that's going to happen, set your mind on things above, your heart on things above, and you've got to have a determined will to do whatever it takes to cooperate with God. Now, have you noticed something here in this passage? He's told us to do all these things. Typical preacher. Put to death. Rid yourself of these things. But the joker doesn't tell us how. Have you noticed that? And the reason I believe he doesn't tell us how is because he knows we've got a teacher inside of us who's going to teach us how. Jesus said the Holy Spirit who's going to come to indwell you is going to be your teacher, and he's going to guide you. So the Bible puts very little emphasis 
on the hows. Because I think the assumption is the Holy Spirit is going to show you how. But make no mistake today, you cannot have a renovated soul unless you cooperate with God. And that means you've got to get very intentional. But here's the final thing today. You've got a heart and mind that are set on things above. You've got a will that is absolutely determined to do whatever it takes for this to happen. And then third, we need emotions that are shaped by love. Emotions that are shaped by love. We're going to read verses 12 through 14, but let me ask you a question before I do. Have you ever met a Christian who seemed to know all the right doctrines and theology, who seemed to know the Bible backwards and forwards, have you ever met a Christian who was a regular churchgoer and, and you know, was a card-carrying Christian, but they were actually not very loving? Have you ever met a person like that? I could introduce you to some today, man. We could, we could do a little field trip. I could, I could introduce you to some who could fit that description, but they're pretty mean-spirited. Hear me. If you've got a person like that, something has gone horribly wrong with the sanctification process. Horribly wrong. Look at what he says here, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, you're already holy in his sight, you've already positionally in Christ, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, when you read that list in verse 12, does that remind you of anything? Probably remind you of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, and this list is very similar. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. This is the kind of personality, the kind of emotional effect God is looking to bring about in your life and mine. It is an oxymoron to say you've got a mature believer who is not a loving person. No, no, no. Your demeanor is to be kind and loving and compassionate. Not this mean-spirited, crotchy, judgmental person. Love is the key. Now, is love more than emotions? You bet it is. But I doubt that there's any real love that does not greatly impact the emotions. Over and over again, we read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion. And again, he doesn't tell us how, does he? He, does, he just says, clothe yourselves with these things. But he doesn't get down into the nuts and bolts of exactly how we're supposed to do that. So at the risk of sounding a little formulaic, I'm going to quickly give you three things I would encourage you to do. Number one... If you really want love to be what is exuding from your life, I would urge you to ask God to flood your heart with his love. 
Great women and men of God down through the ages have asked God to just flood them with love. And here's what he, one, one great leader described it as wave after wave of liquid love that God brought into his life. I dare you to do it. I dare you. I dare you to take Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19, and just pray that in a Lectio Divina kind of fashion, and just pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love, and that God would show you how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I just dare you to do it. Second, identify those relationships where you most need to grow in love. What would those be for you? Boy, I've, I've got some. And I think that many of us might need to look first to our family. It's kind of weird how that we can be more kind to a total stranger than we are to our spouse sometimes, right? Or to our kids or to our parents or to our own neighbors. So who are those people for you? Would it be coworkers? Would it be people in your small group? Would it be somebody in your community? Ask God to point those people out to you and give you a growing love for them. And finally, show love in practical ways. You see, especially to people where you're least likely to receive love in return. That's why I respect so much all the brothers and sisters who regularly serve through this church. All those who signed up for next Saturday's great serving day, I mean, you guys just blew that away. And I, I'm so excited because in every one of those opportunities, it's a situation where you're not likely to get patted on the back very much. You're not likely to receive love back in return. Those are the situations where we become most like Jesus. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? I mean, even the public, even the sinners, even the most secular person loves those who love him or her. But you're most like Christ when you're loving people who are very unlikely to love you back or do anything for you. So here's the deal. God's looking for renovation. He wants you to be one of those amazing extreme makeover stories. Wow. She looked like this, but look at what God did. And I'll tell you, it gives so much glory to God whenever there's a soul, whenever there's a person where Jesus can just be himself in his or her life, that's when God really gets the glory. May we be that kind of people as we follow him day by day. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've called us to a life where our practice matches up with our position. Passages like this kind of shake us. They challenge us to our core. So help us to not slough off the challenge of this today and help us to remember that we're already starting from a position of victory. We're already starting with a secure relationship with you and help our practice to match up to that position. And Father, I pray for so many of us who, who really need to grow in love. And I ask, Lord, that you would just shed abroad your love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom you have given us.
And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.